This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Bands Gone Wild, and this is Rocktober. So as you guys know, this month I'm doing things a little bit differently. So if you're a new listener, what is typical is a true crime story from start to finish that is written and narrated by me. But in these Rocktober episodes, I do a little bit of a more casual take, just a little bit more laid back because we are talking about rock and roll bands, rock and roll mayhem, musicians. (laughs) Any of you are musicians? I salute you. I wish I was a musician, but I am not. I am a podcaster. All I know how to do is talk. I cannot sing. I cannot play an instrument. I'm trying to learn to do a little bit of both of those things. But for now, let's just get to the podcast right after this short break. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So on our second episode of the series, Bands Gone Wild, I get to talk about a band I was really excited to research because I am a big fan, have been a big fan of this band since the 80s. Yes, I am that old. (laughs) And that is The Cure. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the band, and I'm going to tell you a lot about the band's frontman, Robert Smith. And the reason I'm going to focus on Robert is not only because he is the most recognizable of the band members, I'm sure if you've seen a picture of him or you think of the cure in your mind, you have a picture of him, and we'll talk about his signature look a little bit uh, later, but... Also, he was the only consistent band member from the inception of The Cure. All the other band members kind of rotated in and out, although there were some who started with the band and then left and came back. And some of the band members played on several of the albums, but maybe were kind of in and out as well. I'm going to mostly focus on Robert Smith, although there are a couple of the band members that are going to come in and play uh, prominent roles in some of these rock and roll kind of mayhem stories that I'm going to tell you about The Cure. So let's talk a little bit about Robert James Smith, who was born on April 21st, 1959. 
He was born in Blackpool, England, the third of four children. His older brother and sister were like almost a decade or more older than he was. So he and his younger sister were like the second set of kids born to the same parents, Rita May and James Alexander Smith. Both of his parents were musical. His father sang and his mother played the piano. And Robert was brought up in a Catholic family. He and his younger sister, Janet, both received piano lessons. He would say that his sister was the piano prodigy. And the reason he took up guitar, which would be his instrument, was because of sibling rivalry. She was unable to play the guitar. He said her hands were too small to fit around the neck. Believe me, I, I get that. I'm kind of in the same place. <laughs> and uh, he started to learn to play guitar around the age of seven. But he also took classical guitar lessons beginning at age nine. And his older brother, Richard, he's 13 years older than Robert, taught him his first basic chords. He also would say that his guitar tutor was horrified by his guitar playing and uh, basically gave up on him. So instead, uh, Robert decided to teach himself to play by ear, which is how he played music for the rest of his life, pretty much. But then he became more serious about music and playing music, especially when he got into rock music at around the age of 13. He attended Notre Dame Middle School, which was described as a very free-thinking establishment, and he would admit that he took full advantage of that freedom. One thing that I discovered in my research is that Smith seemed to be from probably just his earliest days, a child who liked to buck the rules. He always liked to march to his own drummer. And of course, as I talk about him, and if you want to pull up his picture or any of his videos, you will see that he is a very different person and very much like to march to his own drummer and go by his own rules. So let me give you an example. He once wore a black velvet dress to school. Mostly, he says, to see if he could get away with it. It would be still in the 60s, right? But at this school, the teachers allowed the students to express themselves. So they just said, oh, he's going through a phase. It's fine, <laughs> which is kind of nice, right? He was able to, uh, to do that and be, a, be an individual. Smith would say that he really did just put in minimal effort in his schoolwork, just enough to pass tests. And as far as in middle school, he said, quote, I did virtually nothing for three years. So wasn't doing homework, wasn't into academics. He really was just focused on music. But one of the things I also noticed in my research about uh, Robert Smith was that he tends to change or, or add things or embellish his stories about his life. Over the years, you'll see different uh, stories being told in different interviews about the same subject, like, for example, how he got his first guitar. Sometimes he would say that his brother gave it to him. In another interview, he said he got it from his parents, and he, he comes up with different stories. He's very much a showman, so maybe at the time of when he's telling these stories, he's figuring what's interesting to say right now that people will listen to. Or maybe he just forgot. Who knows? The earliest performances and the amazing thing about The Cure is the formation of The Cure actually started very early. So at the age of 13, he was in Notre Dame Middle School, like I said. He formed a band that would become the first incarnation of what would become The Cure. They called this first band The Oblisk. And The Oblisk only gave one performance, and this was at a school function. But some of these middle school members of this band would go on to be band members in The Cure later on as well. So these were some of the original band members. So Smith was on piano. Mark Chicago was the lead guitarist. Michael Dempsey played rhythm guitar. 
Ellen Hill was their bassist, and Lawrence Lal Tolhurst was on drums. In December 1976, Robert Smith is now 17 and is a student at St. Wilfred's Comprehensive School, and he started another band with other students. This band was called Malice, and some of these band members were former members of the Oblisk. Their second performance was at St. Wilfred's and allegedly caused a riot. <laughs> so they were playing kind of punk. Uh, I guess they would call it like kind of, I don't know if they call it post-punk. Let's, let's say this. It was very loud. It was very fast music. Okay. <laughs> so I guess the kids went a little crazy, caused a little mini riot. He would go on to say, and this was confirmed by other reports, that he and his bandmate uh, Mark were expelled as, quote, undesirable influences <laughs> at the school. So in 1977, the band, which was known as Malice, changed their name to Easy Cure, which later was shortened to The Cure. So now let's talk about The Cure. And I'll give you a general overview about The Cure, and then we'll go into um, how they started and a little bit more about their trajectory towards success. So The Cure, as a band, was formed in the late 1970s. To date, The Cure has released 13 studio albums in total and has sold over 30 million albums worldwide. And like I said, the band has gone through several bandmates' turnover in the band throughout the years. Robert Smith has remained the only constant member, like I said at the top of the show. He didn't set out to be the front man for a band. He very much wanted to be in the background. He saw himself as playing the piano in the background. That was kind of what he envisioned when he first started the band. But after several turnovers and change of instrument, because he now started playing guitar, he decided that he needed to become the lead singer out of necessity. And this is a quote that Robert Smith gave. He said, when we started and were playing in pubs, I wasn't the singer. I was the drunk rhythm guitarist who wrote all these weird songs. We went through about five different singers. They were all fucking useless, basically. I always ended up thinking, I could do better than this. I hated my voice, but I didn't hate it more than I hated everyone else's voice, end quote. Now, if you listen to The Cure or you like Robert Smith's singing, I love his singing. I think he's an amazing singer, but he's very, very different. So it's not, he's not a singer in the traditional sense. Let's put it that way. So all you have to do is listen to the beginning of any, any of his songs and you'll, you'll see what I mean if you don't already listen to The Cure. But I feel like most of you who I'm talking to, because you saw the title of this episode, probably do listen to The Cure or at least have listened to The Cure in the past and might also be fans like I am. When they were still teenagers, they started playing at local pubs and they gained a large fan base really quickly. In 1978 and 79, Robert Smith composed and recorded demo versions of what would be their most recognizable songs. And he did this on his sister's organ with a built-in tape recorder. So you can see how early on this was. This was his first equipment. And one of those songs was 1015 Saturday Night, which would then end up on their debut album called Three Imaginary Boys. The debut album for The Cure came out in 1979 and actually reached number 44 on the UK charts, which is amazing. Like I said, 1015 Saturday Night was one of the most recognizable singles from that album, as well as Fire in Cairo. So here are the people who were in the band from 1979 to 1982 that made up the core of the band was Robert Smith, who was now the vocalist, also a guitarist and a keyboardist for the band. Lal Tolhurst was the drummer and Simon Gallup was the bassist who had replaced Michael Dempsey from the earlier incarnation of the band. 
1979, they were asked to tour with Susie and the Banshees, which was a pretty well-known band at that time. So that was their first big break. By this time, Robert Smith was writing almost all of the Cure's songs and lyrics. And he talks about his writing process. And he said, you know, I never really sat down at a desk or a table with a pencil or a pen and started writing. It was always little snippets of words, of phrases. So I had pieces of paper everywhere and kind of would put those together and and create these songs. Sometimes he would write these songs very, very quickly in that way, which is also amazing. So both of the bands, The Cure and Susie and the Banshees, had been signed by Polydor Records. And the Banshees were now in 1979 on tour for their second album called Join Hands. Smith was a fan of the Banshees. He and Stephen Severin, who was the Banshees bassist, hit it off right away. And that, that's how they were kind of invited to tour with Susie and Banshees. Plus, the record label wanted to promote both bands, and it was a good way to do it. Susie Sue, who was the lead singer for Susie and the Banshees, contributed backing vocals to some of the Cure songs as well. But not long into the tour with the Banshees, their guitarist, John McKay, and their drummer, Kenny Morris, quit the band. And this was just hours before they were supposed to play a concert in Aberdeen. I mean, rock and roll, right? It's mayhem. So you never know what's going to happen, what's going to pop off. So these guys just, you know, up and quit. So now they had to figure out what to do. Robert Smith offered to replace McKay temporarily on the condition that The Cure remained their opening act. This is pretty amazing to me. The tour resumed and Smith was playing in both bands. So at this time, also, he would say that he learned to be a better showman. He learned how to be a frontman by watching Susie, who is, of course, the lead singer um, for Susie and the Banshees, and watching her stage presence. That really helped him with his own. It's interesting because he seems like the kind of person who liked to get attention. Actually, he liked to get negative attention more than anything else. <laughs> so he always was kind of like the, the fly in the ointment or the, you know, that kind of thing, uh, wherever he went. But he was also very quiet and a little shy especially in front of people on stage. It was not something that he wanted, but he learned to get comfortable with it. So, and that would serve him very well. It helped him with his confidence, but also his flamboyant personality started to emerge. It's all about playing to the audience. So in 1980, The Cure released their second album titled 17 Seconds, and that reached top 20 in the UK. And it was at number 20. So at this point is where The Cure takes on this more gothic rock genre. Like they were like the first to be called kind of gothic rock. It kind of solidified as far as their look and their sound later on. But early their their style was very, I would say what we call now kind of emo, right? <laughs> it's like wearing all black and um, their face was always powdered, very pale, dark eyeliner around the eyes, almost to make them look like a raccoon or a panda around the eyes, you know, hair kind of going every which way, usually dyed very dark black or very dark colors, kind of very um, deadpan look to the face. So that kind of look. Smith was the main songwriter. Most of the songs for 17 Seconds were written by him in one night, but many of them were rewritten by the group as a group during the recording of the album. So he basically wrote all of the songs in the first version, went into the studio, and then, you know, they tweaked it a little bit together as a group. 
For the first four albums, all the band members got equal songwriting credits. The single called A Forest became their very first UK hit single, which reached number 31. So right away they had this following, which they didn't really expect because they're very different and they didn't know that anybody would like them or their music. And Smith will talk about that later on and I'll give you some quotes on that. With the success of 17 Seconds and the single, the record label thought it would be a good idea in February of 1980 to release a compilation album. And the compilation album was some songs from the first album, Three Imaginary Boys, and also 17 Seconds. They also included some new tracks on the album, and one of those was Boys Don't Cry. Now, for us in America, that is like the most recognizable song from early Cure, because it was released for that reason, to repackage this and then release it in the U.S. and see if they can get some traction in the U.S. Because they're doing very well in the U.K., but they, they weren't really um, known at all in the U.S. yet. Right after this, because Boys Don't Cry hit the charts and started getting played on the radio in the U.S. as well, hitting the charts in Britain, didn't get as much traction in the U.S. It was kind of like the underground music, you know, how the cool kids <laughs> found these bands and started becoming fans of them, but it really didn't hit the mainstream, and that would happen later on. But still, the record label decided to have them go on a, their first world tour. They played outside of, of Britain for the first time. In 1981, the third album, Faith, also hit the top 20 charts in the UK, topping at number 14. So one thing to note about the album 17 Seconds is that it was much darker. It wasn't wasn't like, like pop music. It was much darker. It was something that was becoming more popular in Britain. And so it did well. So Faith, the third album, the songs were still kind of that dark, somber kind of music. Um, and now the band was being described as pioneers of gothic rock, is what they called it. But the band would now say that they felt like they were stuck, quote, in a ghoulish rut. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, so Robert Smith as the front man would be playing these concerts, doing these songs from 17 Seconds and Faith. And he would be in that persona of the kind of the dark, depressed, you know, emo dude singing these, like he said, depressing songs. And he got so into it that sometimes at the end of the set, he would end up leaving the stage in tears because he was just so, he was so into that and it was just so dark. So now this is where things are going to kind of pop off. And this is when they make their fourth album, Pornography. It was The Cure's first UK top 10 album, ranking at number eight. And it remained on the charts for nine weeks. This was released in May of 1982. During the recording of this album, and actually even before they started recording this album, there was a lot going on with the band. And Robert Smith and the rest of the bandmates were under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, because now they've gotten some success in the UK. They've gotten some success in other countries. But it was always the most desirable thing is to make it in the U.S. So now the record label is, is really trying to get them to chart in the U.S. And so they're feeling a lot of pressure to create something. And they also felt like they needed to change up what they had been doing, but trying to figure that out. And this is what Smith would say about that time in the band's history. Quote, there was a lot of tension in our personal lives. The music always reflected to a very large degree how I am mentally, because remember, he's the writer. The album was very dark, or as Smith later described it, quote, a churning inferno of rage, nausea, and despair. Now, the band has admitted to, during this time, 
taking a lot of LSD and drinking a lot of alcohol while recording this album. Even though pornography was the first top 10 album doing very well on the charts, Smith would describe it as a, quote, artistic failure and a commercial disaster, which makes no sense because it definitely was not a commercial disaster. (laughs) And it was pretty well received. But this is what he says about it. Again, him being in this dark time of his life, being under a lot of stress. I'll tell you a little bit in a minute about maybe why he wasn't, in his mind, that proud of this album. He said, quote, I didn't think I'd made that good an album. We thought it was all right, but not that good. No one liked us from faith to pornography. We didn't seem to move up at all. He's talking about as far as audiences and and things like that. He said nothing got played on the radio. So the basis for the band, Simon Gallup, described the album this way, saying, quote, nihilism took over. We sang, quote, it doesn't matter if we all die. And that is exactly what we thought at the time. By the time the album Pornography came out, the band had fully embraced their signature look, which I want to tell you a little bit about. They all had big kind of messy hair that was kind of stacked up high, jutting out at all angles. They had red lipstick usually smeared around their mouth, sometimes around their eyes as well. And they had this look of a deathly pallor that emitted from like pale powdered faces. Robert Smith in in particular would incorporate these long tendrils of hair that hung down in front of his face, kind of like a a curtain. (laughs) And black clothing and, like I said, the pale faces and and the very dark hair. When you think about Robert Smith's look, you can think Edward Scissorhands without the scissors. That's that was my best way of describing it. Oh, speaking of Edward Scissorhands, incidentally, Tim Burton was a big fan of the hair. And he said that he drew on Robert Smith's look and his somber demeanor as an influence in creating that character, Edward Scissorhands, which I I always thought was pretty cool. I didn't know that. Tim Burton actually approached the group with a request to provide the soundtrack later on when the movie came out in 1990. And he even sent them the script. But they were at the time where they were recording their album Disintegration and they couldn't make time for that another project. But Tim Burton didn't give up because he, he just loved the cure. He loved the sound and he really wanted to have them do something for one of his projects. So he kept asking over the years. And finally, finally, much later on, Robert Smith would contribute music to his later projects, um, the movie Almost Alice and also Frankenweenie. That was a little side, but let's go back to the pornography album and specifically the pornography tour. Like I said, there was a lot of pressure on the band at this time. And here's one quote, the strain of playing emotionally crushing songs every night in various states of narcotic disrepair broke the band. Um, And this is a quote from Robert Smith. By the end of the tour, we weren't in the best of health mentally, he says. Night after night playing those songs. Most nights after the show were pretty demented as a response to what we were doing musically. So it's being immersed in this dark, depressing, nihilistic, you know, sounding with, with, these lyrics, like everything's terrible and, you know, we might as well die, you know, all those things was affecting them. Plus, of course, on top of that, the drugs they were doing, the alcohol they were consuming and being very young. And, you know, we don't make the best choices as far as uh, alcohol and, you know, other substance intake at that time. I think we learned that later what our limits are or, or what they're not. So he he goes on to say, I was in a really depressed frame of mind between 1981 and 1982, and I was taking an awful lot of drugs, anything and everything. We all were. Inevitably, it sent our mental equilibrium awry. I was completely fed up with what the group was in every way. I thought we were going downhill, end quote. This is what I was trying to get 
too, when I was doing the research on this, I'm like, okay, what made him go from being this guy who loved to play music to being able to do that for fans and being able to do what he wanted really because the music he was playing was very different. And the record label, for the most part, seemed to be allowing him to do what he wanted to do musically, which is, you know, a huge feat for anybody. And also having it very well received, it's selling. Why did he get in this downer mood? What happened? What did he, what did he not like about it? This is, this is the part that kind of stood out to me. So he was a classically trained musician, and he would say that he saw himself composing symphonies like Mahler. When he was young, this is what he was thinking he was going to become. Now he was a pop star or on his way to becoming one. And he kind of felt like he'd maybe sold out or he wasn't living his true calling or he wasn't, it wasn't serious music. It was all that kind of thing going around in his head. So my theory was more than likely this was as a result of the band getting too popular, too successful, too fast. And think about who he was and where he had come from. He was someone who had saw himself and felt like an outcast all his life, all his young life. And now he was gracing the covers of like teeny bopper magazines. It seems very unlikely, but that's what it was. He, he became like a heartthrob. So, I mean, go figure. But I mean, this is early 80s. It's like Boy George and The Cure and people were very different. You know, it wasn't like the usual, but these people were getting very popular and younger people were embracing these artists who were very much themselves, were very unique, came out with their own brand of music, their own look, uh, could be anything. And so I don't think he expected that was going to happen. He thought, nobody's going to listen to this. It's just going to be something fun I do. So when that blew up, he wasn't ready for it. I don't think any of them were. And I also thought he may have been suffering from a little bit of an imposter syndrome, you know, that thing where you're like, oh God, everybody likes us and we, we're no good. We suck. You know, you do that, right? When you, <laughs> I think anybody who creates anything maybe has a little bit of that or maybe a lot, you know, where you're like, why is anybody listening to this podcast? You know, or whatever. Or why is anybody buying my records? I mean, I'm not that, I'm just me. I'm nobody, you know, that kind of imposter syndrome. I think that was a little bit was going on for him as well. So what I think happened is he self-sabotaged himself to prove to himself that he was still an undesirable. Remember, they called him that in school and they kicked him out. I think he liked that. I think he liked that role. I think he felt comfortable in being this person who doesn't fit in, this person who people don't get. And I'm an undesirable. And now he's very desirable <laughs> as an artist, as a, a front man. He's now the lead singer. I mean, this is just a whole shakeup and it's in a very short amount of time. He's still very, very young. Another thing that came out too, during this time where they were promoting pornography, remember they had been closely connected to Susie and the Banshees. Now, Steve Severin from the Banshees, he was the bassist. He had actually added to the tension between the Cure's members, and he did it deliberately. He admits this. Uh, one of the things that happened early on, I don't think this was part of it, but just, you know, uh, as an aside, he was also one that introduced Robert Smith to LSD, which, okay, you know, they experimented with whatever, but Smith himself would say that he overdid it, and it really kind of led to a lot of tension and a lot of his own mental decline at times, his own mood decline, if you want, whatever you want to call that, um, was not doing well. So Severin said that he fanned the flames of tension between the band members, and this is why. He wanted Smith to disband the cure and to join the Banshees. 
He thought Smith was great. And if he joins the Banshees, we'll have his talent in our band instead of having to compete with the Cure or any of that kind of thing. This is what Severin said, quote, I used to either steal Lowell's drinks or spike them when he was playing. Now, Lowell was the drummer for The Cure. Or spike them when he was playing, he later laughs. He said, I was always asking Robert to disband The Cure and join us. I was definitely sowing the seeds of discontent. He would actually get his wish after the pornography tour ended. We'll get there in a second. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So during the tour for the album Pornography, which was The Cure's fourth album that came out in 1982, tensions began to rise between Robert Smith and Simon Gallup, the band's bassist. Both of them were overindulging in alcohol and drugs. They also had a clash of egos. Robert Smith would later admit this, quote, in the past, I didn't really give a shit about what I was saying, so I would just be drunk all the time. The only way I could get through a day of interviews was to have two drinks with every interview, end quote. It would cause him to make some poor decisions at times about what he would say, what he would do, how he would act. Regarding his relationship with Simon Gallup, Smith said, quote, there was always a slight kind of tension because I was getting more attention than him because Smith now was the the front man. Now, remember, the, the group had started out as a cohesive band and everybody helped, everybody got writing credits and they all worked together and all of this. But the record label saw that Smith was popular with people that were buying the albums. They liked him. They would buy posters of him. They would come to see him. I think this, at least in Smith's mind, didn't go over very well with Gallup, who thought, oh, he's being prima donna or whatever, or just getting more attention. He just, you know, there was that kind of uh, rivalry or jealousy. Also on the tour, there was a person named Gary Biddles who had joined the band as a roadie. So he was working for the band. You know, the roadies are the ones on tour who basically just help out with whatever needs done. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an important job. They deal with equipment. They deal with uh, all kinds of things. Um, but this guy, Gary Biddles, was a little bit, <laughs> I think he was a little bit of a wannabe rock star. And he sure partied like one. These shows, with all of this going on, tension between the band members, too much alcohol, too much drugs, you've got people talking in other people's ears, trying to sow discontent between them. You've got roadies who are just partying like rock stars and, you know, jumping up on stage. You know, we'll see that in a minute. It, it just gets crazy. The shows became complete mayhem. <laughs> and this is something Robert Smith uh, describes in this quote. Me and Simon would jump into the audience and fight people. It was so out of character. 
Yeah, if you look at Robert Smith, you would not think him to be a brawler. (laughs) He said, looking back, I must have been pretty seriously disturbed. I don't even remember it very well. I used to be in a rage before I even went on stage. It wasn't even people not receiving the music. I was angry at everything. Rather than thinking, we should take a break. We've been around each other for much too long. We just carried on with it to its logical conclusion, or maybe illogical conclusion. Here's one of the main incidents that happened uh, during that tour. This was on May 27th, 1982. They had uh, put on a show at Hall Tivoli in Strasbourg, France. And then the band went to a bar after the show. And this is when all hell broke loose. This is what Simon Gallup would say happened. And there's two different versions. I'm going to give you uh, Simon Gallup's first. Quote, I was about to leave, talking about leaving the bar, when some guy came up and told me I hadn't paid for my drinks. He was quoted as saying this in the book called Ten Imaginary Years. And this is a book about the cure. And I'll continue with the quote. He thought I was Robert. I was knackered, but the bloke took me up to the bar and Robert appeared to see what was going on. Okay, he appeared to see what was going on. You'll find out why, because I think that Simon was screaming and it was big brouhaha already going on. Whatever happened in that moment when Robert came to see and then there was uh, an, an altercation, Gallup turned around and hit Robert Smith. And of course, he says he responded and we had a fight. So he says that simply, okay. So here's Smith's account of what happened with a little bit more detail. I was on the first floor of this club when they came up and told me that there was a problem downstairs, he later recalled. Simon was so wound up that no one could talk to him. He was screaming at the barman, this young kid who was nearly in tears. By himself, Simon would have never behaved like that, but he was surrounded by the road crew, so he was behaving the way he thought a rock and roller ought to behave. He said he didn't want to pay for his drinks because he thought I wasn't paying for mine. I told him to shut up, and he punched me. (laughs) It was the first time he really laid into me. We had an enormous ruck, and I said, that's it. Walked out, got a cab back to the hotel, got my suitcase, my passport from the tour manager's room, and got on the first flight to London. That was at 6.30 a.m., and I was home by half past 10. I left a note saying I wasn't coming back. Simon returned the same afternoon I'd left, so I suppose he thought he could do the same. Good idea. We had three days off, end quote. So Lull would say the pressure of having to keep up the intensity and aggressive sentiments of pornography turned Simon into someone different, though at the time I don't think he noticed or he didn't want to. That was Lull Tolhurst's take on what was going on with all the tension at that time. Smith left. He said, I'm out. And he returned to his parents' house in Sussex. But his father, his father told him, look, it's your duty to go back because people have bought tickets. You need to go entertain these people who purchase tickets. It's your, it's your duty. Later, um, Robert Smith would say, I knew when I was going home that that's what my dad would say. <laughs> so only one show got canceled. Both of the men returned to the tour, but their onstage presence was not good. They were moody. They were bad-tempered. They started getting in fights with members of the audience now. <laughs> Because they were so on edge. Oh my God, I can't even imagine. Can you imagine going to see a band and before you know it, somebody maybe says something or I don't know what happened. Maybe because they were had their sour face and they were just phoning it in at the con- I don't know. Somebody was heckling them in the audience and they would just go flying out into the audience and start just like wailing on people. So that's crazy. Sometimes they would jump from the stage to attack these hecklers. And on tour, sometimes when they were not, not on stage, but off you know, supposedly having an off night or whatever, they would get in fights at bars, sometimes with burly bikers, sometimes with hotel staff, 
sometimes with nightclub bouncers, and they would get their ass kicked <laughs> almost every time, but they kept doing it. It's that whole nihilistic attitude that he had, like nothing matters, we don't give a shit about anything, this sucks, everything sucks, and you know. It's like he started living in the lyrics of his songs and thinking that that was reality when it wasn't. And of course, like I said, the drugs and alcohol didn't help because, you know, alcohol is being a depressant. It didn't help. kind of kept him in that, in that mood. He would later say that he really never believed at this time when he was in his early 20s that he'd lived to be 30. And he said, and I lived like it was already a fact that I wasn't going to be alive at 30, which tells you why I guess you could jump in and, and start throwing blows at burly bikers when you're not very burly yourself. <laughs> okay. So at this point, the band's already going wild, right? But this is what's going to be the wildest of the wild. June 11th, 1982. The Cure was playing a gig at the, and I don't speak French, so I'll attempt it, Ancien Belgique. Okay, this is in Brussels, Belgium. So you guys that speak French, don't hate me, okay? And this was the final date of the pornography tour. So this was only two weeks after that fight that they got into at the bar. Before the concert started, Smith and Lowell Tolhurst were sitting in the dressing room and they were both in a foul mood. So Smith stood up and said, hey, I'm not singing tonight. I refuse. I'm not singing. He says, I, I think I'll play the drums instead. And so then Simon Gallup, the bassist, said, oh, okay, fine then. I'm going to play lead guitar. So then the drummer told her, said, well, then I'll play bass, I guess. So, <laughs> and this is just like minutes before they're going to go on stage. Later, Smith would explain this, saying that he knew that this was the end of the tour. They all knew that this was the end of the tour. And due to all the fights and all the tension between them, they all really believed that they would never play together again anyway. So he said, I decided to do something different to end it as only the cure could do by doing something completely unexpected and out of the ordinary, because that's who we were, who we were supposed to be. So basically he was doubling down on the we don't give a fuck attitude that had launched the band and against all odds had made them a success. Smith says this, quote, I knew it was the last chance we had to make this memorable in the worst possible way. I'd never played the drums in public at all. I don't think Lol even knew which way up a bass went. We just launched into feedback and noise. <laughs> so that's what it sounded like on the stage. But apparently the crowd went along with it, but they also kind of added their own energy to it, which was getting a little chaotic as well. Getting a little loud, a little, you know, crazy, because the band, like I said in the last episode, when we talked about Axl Rose, is that the people on stage are really setting the mood for the entire place, for the audience. So you come out there and you're high energy and you're having a good time. Everybody's going to be high energy and have a good time. You come out there and you're chaotic and angry and that kind of energy, it could spill over and people start acting that way as well. So they finished their set. Now they're playing an encore and they just improvise the song and they call it The Cure is Dead <laughs> because again, they're in their mind, this is, the, this is it. This is the end of The Cure, this last show. Now the roadie, Gary Biddles, and I told you I'd tell you about him. Here we go. Gary Biddles stumbles on stage, totally wasted, and he now decides to take on the role of the lead singer. So he grabs the mic and he starts, I think he was, they said he was chanting, and he starts talking shit about everybody in the band except for Simon Gallup, which I guess is maybe his friend. 
So he starts screaming that Smith's a wanker, Toll Hurst's a wanker, only Simon's worth anything in the band. The cure is dead. So he's just talking all kinds of shit, drunkenly or whatever. So Smith now gets pissed. <laughs> he, remember, was on the drums. So he throws a drumstick at the back of the roadie's head and tells him to fuck off. <laughs> so now, <laughs> now the band members all, you know, just basically fly at each other on the stage. Now, remember, this is in front of the whole audience. So Robert Smith, the roadie Gary Biddles, and Simon Gallup all start fist fighting each other on stage in front of, I don't know how many people. I should have looked up the number, but a lot of people. So the crowd begins to laugh, some begin to boo, some begin to whistle, yell, you know, um, it just becomes chaotic mayhem there. And a mini riot even broke out in the crowd. Because again, like I said, the energy will spill over into the audience and that's what happened. Lowell Tolhurst, <laughs> you gotta love this guy. He continued playing the bass, even while the fight was going on, he just kept playing the bass. <laughs> He kept playing the song. Oh, my God, that's dedication. I, I don't think he knew what else to do. The show ended and, quote, we went home, Smith concludes. Okay, so that's the show in Brussels. So, I mean, complete chaos. The end of the band. I mean, talk about an ending, right? After the Brussels show ended, Tolhurst said, I remember sitting in the dressing room thinking, oh, well, that's the end of the band then. At that point, Simon Gallup left the band. He and Smith, the relationship was completely ruptured. And he and Robert Smith did not speak for 18 months. When asked why he left The Cure, Simon Gallup responded saying, it's just basically that Robert and I are both really arrogant bastards. And it got to such an extreme. I suppose you can't have two egocentrics in a band. And Robert was sort of the main man. So this is so funny. So Simon Gallup and Gary Biddles, the roadie, who was friends with Gallup, I don't know, maybe he was some kind of musician, I don't know, started a new band, eventually naming it Fool's Dance. Okay, so after that happened, uh, Robert Smith, he went on holiday for a month to the Lake District, and he said he cleaned up his act. He said, I didn't do any drugs, I didn't do any hard liquor, I only drank beer. Meanwhile, remember that Steve Severin from the Banshees was trying to get Robert to come play for their band. And uh, he approached him at that time in 1982, and Smith said, okay, I'll do it. He became the lead guitarist for Susie and the Banshees, playing with the band from 1982 to 1984. But Smith's heart was still really with The Cure, because that was, you know, his first band. It was his band. Um, so he continued to write some songs for The Cure, should he ever find a way to reboot it. And one of those songs was Let's Go to Bed, which he said was a blatant attempt to get played on commercial radio. And of course, this is also one of their more recognizable songs to this day. And it was put out by the record label. And this is what he says about it. Quote, it was junk. Fiction put it out. Fiction was the subsidiary of the record label. Fiction put it out and suddenly we were getting 15 plays a day on American radio. And he laughs about that. Like, go figure. So he thought about putting the band back together, but when he did that, he thought he needed to be more practical about the music, his expectations, and if he did that, it would serve him better. He said, quote, if I play my cards right, I could make a living at this. This is what happens. The band comes back together, releases the single, The Walk, which became a top, the first top 20 hit in Britain. At the same time, remember, this is 1982, 1984. This is the very beginning of MTV. Of course, in those days, was just videos being played, music videos being played. 
And uh, that's what you wanted. You wanted heavy rotation on MTV. That was going to put you on the charts. That was going to make you a superstar, right? So band in the, in the record label enlisted video producer Tim Pope. And Tim Pope was the one who produced some of the Cure's most memorable videos and really turned them into stars in America. And then, of course, around the world because of that. One of the first videos they made was Let's Go to Bed, followed by Love Cats. Those are the first two videos and Love Cats reached number 12 and was the biggest hit for The Cure to date. Because of that, in 1983, they embarked on another tour in the UK first. There was still some incidents of craziness <laughs> because it's just, you know, tours. This is why I'm doing Bands Gone Wild because bands on tour tend to get a little crazy. I mean, there was a specific thing that was happening at this time. So Andy Anderson had signed on for The Cure to be their drummer and was, was working with them um, on this tour. But he started acting erratically on tour. And they were like, what the heck's going on with this guy? You know, there was just, he would get angry. There was things happening. He would, you know, be drinking too much. It seemed out of the ordinary for, for him. So they talked to some of his former bandmates because he had worked, you know, for other bands. And they said that Andy Anderson was a great drummer. But if he goes on tour too long, he, quote, goes crazy. <laughs> so that was one thing they said. But Anderson, who was black, also was experiencing racism while on tour with The Cure, and this really contributed to him being frustrated and angry and acting out, which is understandable. One of the incidents was he was arrested in France because he was going back to the hotel. When he got to the hotel, the security didn't believe that he was a guest. So he went to go take the room key out of his pocket to prove it to them, and because he stuck his hand in his pocket, the security guard maced him. He went berserk. Is, is the word that they used to describe how angry he became. And he was running down the hallway, banging on doors. I'm not sure what that was about. He ran after the security guard and there was a big to-do. Long story short, he was arrested and he was put in jail. Um, after the story was told what had happened, he was released without charge. But the judge said under the condition that the cure leaves town. And then the town they were in was Nice, France. Um, then he got into another fight at a hotel in Tokyo, not long after that, during the tour, and this time the band fired him. In 1985, The Cure released their seventh album, Head on the Door, and Robert Smith was actually very pleased with this album. He says, the sound was really vibrant, the band was really good. It was so easy. The recording sessions, everything happened at first take. It was a joy to make the record, and I thought, this is going to start something. So very different attitude from the early albums that he was basically dissing his own albums. And he was right. Head on the Door was their breakthrough album. There was two hit singles in it. Uh, the first one was In Between Days, and the second one was Close to Me. And both had videos directed by Pope, which went on heavy rotation on MTV, which is, like I said, what you want. The record label, oh, and I, I want to say a little bit about the video. You can go watch it on YouTube. Close to Me is the one everybody remembers. Close to Me is the one where it starts with the band. It's like they're in this really confined space. Like, it's like they're inside a very small room or something. It's very claustrophobic looking. And then there's a cutaway shot and you see that it's a piece of furniture. It's a wardrobe that's sitting on the edge of a cliff over an ocean. And then you see the wardrobe go tumbling down this long cliff into the water. And then it's the band is in the wardrobe. And now you see them in the wardrobe as it's filling up with water. And they're still playing and singing. And 
Um, and there's some weird finger puppets in there too, but you have to go see it. It's really, it's something you, you see it, you don't forget. Okay. So the Cure's record label now re-released Boys Don't Cry, Let's Go to Bed, and Charlotte Sometimes, which was another single that was a hit in the UK. And now people knew who they were, the videos, the songs, and they became superstars. There was one very tragic thing that happened, which had nothing to do with the, the Cure, but did happen at a Cure concert. In 1987, the Cure was on tour and they were doing a concert at a football stadium in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and a full-on riot broke out there. Now, what happened was the stadium had a capacity of 17,000 people, but there was more than 20,000 people there because thousands of counterfeit tickets were sold. And then some people were not allowed to come into the stadium because they started to figure out that these tickets were fake and then all hell broke loose. Of the riot, Smith would say, that was ugly. He said, it was the one time I've been really frightened with the cure because we were locked in this basement room and we could smell burning. Sirens were going off and I thought, we're not going to get out of this. They ushered them backstage because it was just pandemonium. Bricks and bottles were raining down on the stage. And in the end, one a vendor there had died of a heart attack. Three police dogs were, were killed in the melee. And I don't know how or why, and I don't want to know, because I don't want to know how dogs die. Um, but yeah, there lots of injuries, lots of uh, property damage. And, you know, unfortunately, somebody died. But, you know, fortunately, it wasn't worse, because it very well could have been. So this is The Cure. And I'll give you a little bit of an update on uh, Robert Smith. Well, let me give you an update from 2014 first. Uh, Robert Smith at that time was 43 and said in this interview that he wasn't very different from the 21-year-old fighting on stage with his bandmates so many years before. Quote, I still get very agitated about the same things I did when I was 21. I just don't let it ruin my life. You'd be very stupid to be in your 40s and still living the same life. Or you'd be dead. If I had attempted to live my life the way I did in 1982 and 83, I'd have ended up killing myself. Then he chuckles. Still, you're going to end up dying anyway. And you know, it doesn't matter if we all die. Going back to his, some of his original lyrics, right? Okay, last updates. Robert Smith. He's married. He's been married a long time. In 1988, he married his wife, Mary Teresa Poole, whom he met in school when they were both 14, which is really cute. She's been a model and a nurse, and they have now been married for 34 years. They have no children. Robert Smith is now 63, and he's still recording and touring, sometimes as a single artist, sometimes collaborating with other artists, sometimes as a part of The Cure. In September 2020, Smith appeared on the Gorillaz song, Strange Times, from their Song Machine series, and also appeared in the song's animated music video, which I need to go watch, because that sounds really cool. In December 2020, he took part in two live stream charity events, including the Cosmic Shambles Network's Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, which was a 24-hour charity live stream. And on that, he played three songs from the 17 Seconds album. He played In Your House, M, and Play for Today. He also played three songs from the Faith album, The Holy Hour, The Funeral Party, and The Drowning Man for the live stream. And in June 2021, he appeared on the Church's song, How Not to Drown, from their album Screen Violence. And the Church's was a band I just saw live at the Bottle Rock Festival in Napa just about two months ago. So I didn't know he was on their album. That's, that's pretty cool. 
So that is the end of the second episode of Bands Gone Wild and all about The Cure and Robert Smith. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed researching it. I've been listening to The Cure albums uh, all week long. I, I have actually have vinyl uh, uh, Cure albums that I listen to, but I've been putting it on my playlist in my car and listening, and uh, it really brings back a lot of memories. You know, I was at the time very young, <laughs> And uh, I just, I just love the Cure. I just love his voice. I love to watch the videos. I have not been able to see the Cure live. I never did get to do that. I should have. I don't know why I didn't. I missed them. Uh, yeah, if he ever comes and does something, I probably would go see him. I probably would. I think he'd be really interesting to watch and 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 a fun show. So that is it. One more. We've got one more episode of Bands Gone Wild next week, and I hope you come back and join me for that episode as well. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. If you want to hear all episodes of Once Upon a Crime ad-free, you have a few options. Join our Patreon, and for as little as $2 a month, you can get ad-free early release episodes and other perks. Just go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. You can also join Stitcher Premium to get this podcast, as well as many of your other favorite podcasts, ad-free. You can use my code once upon a crime to get your first month of Stitcher Premium free. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.